Welcome to The Sound of IR, a podcast that seeks to educate aspiring interventional radiologists about the clinical practice of IR. I'm Ben Rausch, a third-year medical student at Western Michigan University, Homer Stryker MD School of Medicine. And I'm Adam Swirsky, a second-year medical student at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. We realized the educational power of podcasts for medical education and worked with a great team of students, residents, and attendings to create a resource specifically for interventional radiology. We will be the hosts of this episode, and we hope that you will find it both educational and enjoyable. We're very excited to introduce this next episode of the Sound of IR podcast, in which Sana Herwald and I will discuss pulmonary embolism, or PE, with Dr. Osman Ahmed, uh, interventional radiologist at Rush University Medical Center, and soon-to-be interventional radiologist at the University of Chicago Medical Center. Dr. Ahmed, thank you for joining us on our podcast today. Uh, so before we get into uh, pulmonary embolism, we'd love to hear a bit of how you got here. Uh, so what made you decide to become an interventional radiologist? Um, well, Adam, first, thanks for having me on. And, uh, and again, it's, uh, it's a great um, pleasure and privilege to kind of participate in this. I really think what you guys are doing is awesome. Um, you know, with respect to what made me go into IR, um, you know, I have a lot of love for tech. Um, and I think that's kind of what drew me to radiology uh, in general. But, um, you know, during my residency, I realized that um, I really, did, you know, as corny as it sounds, I really did miss the clinical aspect of medicine and, and just the feeling of, you know, participating in kind of uh, uh, in a team to treat patients. And so um, I really found that with IR um, that um, you know, where you, when you can apply tech to actually, you know, treating patients as opposed to just di- making diagnoses, um, uh, it really kind of uh, brought me into the field. And, and, you know, honestly, since I've joined, it's just really exploded. And so, um, uh, you know, in retrospect, it's been an awesome decision. And, and it's been really nice to kind of just see the field grow, like, um, you know, before my eyes, you know, d- d- even since my training. So um, I'm really happy I ended up making that decision. That's awesome to hear. And then Dr. Ahmad, how do you structure your current practice at Rush? How do you balance your clinical responsibilities and your interactions with patients with um, other aspects of of what you do? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, You know, I'm really fortunate to be um, currently where I'm at. Um, Rush um, is an awesome place. Um, It's a a university hospital. So, you know, I'm in the field of academics. And, you know, we really have a, a truly clinical model uh, of practice. So, um, you know, in general, um, my work week is kind of divided into about three days of uh, clinical work, um, meaning uh, in, the, in, the, in the IR suite, um, performing procedures, and one day uh, of clinic um, where, we, where I actually see uh, my patients um, either pre-op or, or post-op, uh, meaning, um, you know, we'll see our outpatient consults and things like that. Um, and then uh, one day of clinic, or sorry, one day of research where um, I get to kind of spend time, you know, uh, doing the um, pursuing kind of um, research projects with um, with with, uh, with trainees and and uh, myself as well. So um, it, it's really nice to kind of be able to uh, participate in IR and all those different aspects. Um, we also have um, uh, obviously a training program, and so. Um, it's also nice to work with, um, with fellows and residents in terms of teaching and, and, and all that. Um, uh, they, our fellows do a lot of work, meaning they kind of do the bulk of our 
our day-to-day um, management of our patients um, with respect to consenting and, and running our inpatient service and essentially any procedure at Rush, um, whether it's a pick line um, all the way up to a TIPS, um, uh, can only be ordered in the form of an IR consult. So uh, every patient, every procedure we do uh, is worked up in that sense. Um, a consult note is written, the patient's consented uh, before we do a procedure on them. Um, we're very grateful to have the chance to learn from you in a, in a different way today. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. I did want to follow up. Um, how is it that you got involved with research and how do you uh, spend your one research day? Do you do more clinical research or translational? Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely more focused on clinical research. Uh, I've unfortunately, never really been more of uh, like really a lab uh, type of person. Um, but, you know, I really didn't start doing research until... I would say the end of my residency. Um, I had the fortunate, you know, opportunity to, to train at University of Chicago uh, under Brian Fanaki, who's, you know, a really uh, a pretty prolific clinical researcher, and um, it really just drew me to academics. And so, a lot of my research, almost all my research, I would say, I spend um, with trainees, whether that's residents or fellows, or um, actually, um, most of my students are even um, now. Uh, medical students as well. So, you know, research uh, starts at any really, at any level. And what I really like about it is um, it keeps you engaged with the field. It allows you to really uh, become an expert on, on whatever you end up wanting to do research on. And so, um, as you guys probably are already doing or will see eventually, is that as you go through school, you always have your own questions that come up in your, in your mind. And, and that's what I love about research is you can kind of come up with those questions and then just decide to, to interrogate it and, and look into it. And so I've been fortunate to, to be able to come up with those questions and have the people kind of help me uh, look into them. And, uh, and we've been able to, you know, publish a good number of papers um, at Rush and, and present nationally and uh, internationally. And so uh, it's been great. Um, uh, I'll say my research day is, is very, very busy for, for that reason. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. And it actually, you know, it leads into um, my next question. Um, so I saw you speak at the self-assessment module for pulmonary embolism at SIR, and there was a panel with uh, Dr. Quo, Dr. Sista, uh, Dr. Weinstein, and Dr. Horowitz. And I guess my question is, how did you uh, come to be involved in the pulmonary embolism discussion? Was that through research? Was it a case that you saw? Um, was it a mentorship type thing? Um, well, Adam, thanks. First, first, thanks for coming to the session. It was great. Oh, awesome. No, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, um, to answer that question, um, you know, all the, those other guys are, they're all really, really um, great people, really prominent people in the field of, of PE research, and um, um, they're really experts. And so I've, I had the very fortunate opportunity of training under Dr. Koh um, at Stanford um, for my fellowship. And, um, you know, he was a he was a great mentor. He's a great friend, um, and you know he's a very well known person in the field of VTE, and uh, he's really kind of turned me on to that field, and um, specifically IVC filters, and 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 uh, especially um, pulmonary embolism as well. And so, um, I think under his mentorship and and kind of guidance, um, I really um, have had a great interest, um, and so. Uh, that's manifested through research, um, through building a uh, trying to uh, trying to build a, uh, a clinical practice in that, and uh, again, fortunate to be at Rush, where you know we do all those things, and we have a pretty robust kind of PE practice as well. And so, 
Um, I think, uh, you know, uh, those guys have asked me to kind of join uh, for that reason. And so it's been really a, a privilege. Um, uh, in the process, Dr. Sista, Weinstein, and Horowitz have all, you know, kind of become friends. And um, those guys are all doing really, you know, uh, kind of leading the direction of the future of, of PE um, in terms of research and management. So, um, yeah, I, I share your sentiment, Adam, that I think it's a great session. And, and um, I, learn, I learn things myself each year. So it's been cool. With that, we'd love to launch into uh, a further discussion of uh, pulmonary embolism and other venothrombolic embolic disease. Sure. So because we have an audience that uh, has trainees at all different levels, including some medical students, um, could you talk to us about what the pathophysiology is of venothromboembolism? So things like uh, DVTs or deep vein thrombosis and PEs or pulmonary embolisms, and sort of how these, um, how these happen or why these happen and how these patients typically present. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, uh, DVT, VT, um, you know, is a, is a spectrum of disease. And so, uh, you know, when we, when we talk about uh, VT, we start with, um, with DVT, as you mentioned. And, you know, it comes back to medical school of, of what causes DVT, you know, when we think of uh, the triad, um, which is, you know, stasis, um, endothelial injury, or hypercoagulability. And so any, you know, any of those um, kind of factors, and uh, that will lead to to, to DVT. Um, and then the most severe uh, spectrum of VT, um, you know, manifests with uh, DVT uh, embolizing to the lungs, and then that would be uh, in the form of pulmonary embolism. And so when we talk about DVT, um, we're looking at patients who um, could uh, can present asymptomatic, completely asymptomatic, um, and just kind of detected on, on screening um, or for other reasons. Um, but uh, DVT, um, it can, you know, uh, present anywhere from the, you know, from the below knee veins all the way up to the IVC. And so uh, depending on its size, um, it can uh, manifest with, you know, pain, swelling, edema. Um, if it sticks around, um, we talk about things like post-thrombotic syndrome, which is kind of the um, devastating consequences of, of uh, um, chronic DVT. And so those, um, and, and that that is a more of a discussion uh, surrounding, um, you know, venous ulceration, uh, immobility, um, things that can be really, really um, uh, uh, quality of life limiting uh, on patients. And so, um, and then when we talk about pulmonary embolism, we talk about things that are, you know, potentially life-threatening, um, not just um, uh, morbidity related. Again, uh, pulmonary embolism patients can uh, present on a, um, spectrum themselves. Um, they can be completely asymptomatic, again, uh, uh, just incidentally discovered. But, and then we, we talk about, uh, you know, the spectrum of PE all the way up to massive PE where patients can uh, essentially present an extremis or, or, or near death. And so a wide range of uh, presentation, uh, which um, really is uh, what makes the disease, you know, kind of challenging and, and um, interesting to treat. So it sounds like a very complex spectrum of diseases. Are there any cases where you would choose not to treat um, a venothromboembolic disease, or um, would you treat all comers? How would you approach um, the decision to treat? Yeah, um, great question. You know, um, the vast majority of VTEs is managed medically. When I say medically, we're referring to just anticoagulation. And so, um, you know, the role of where IR fits, um, where even surgery uh, fits, 
is still evolving. Um, and, you know, at present, uh, the majority of DBT, um, the majority of PE is still managed medically, which is most likely appropriate. But it's really, we're trying to figure out the patients that uh, would benefit from endovascular treatments um, with respect to PE and DVT. You know, at present, you know, the role for DVT, again, has evolved since the ATTRACT trial. Um, it has maybe caused us to kind of pause and, and think about who we should be treating. But in general, we treat, for DVT, we, we treat um, um, ilio, ilio cable um, DVT. In addition, we, tr- uh, we also manage DVT in patients who cannot be anticoagulated um, through the use of uh, IVC filters. And then on the, on the PE side, we'll, I think we'll, we can probably uh, get more into that discussion, but there are uh, surgical treatments and there's also obviously uh, you know, IR or endovascular treatments available as well. So why don't we uh, get into that discussion a little bit more? So right now, what are the current standard of care treatments for PE and uh, where does IR fit into that picture? I know you mentioned that uh, surgery and medical all involved in that discussion, um, but what are the, some of the uh, pharmacologic therapies? And you also mentioned prevention, so we could talk about prevention as well. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, when we talk about PE, um, you know, it's really important that we kind of divide PE up into three categories. You know, fortunately for patients, uh, majority of, of um, PEs are what we call low-risk um, PE where um, uh, patients essentially have PE, but they really don't have any uh, hemodynamic uh, consequences of that. And so that's, you know, roughly about 70% of patients. Um, and those patients are managed just uh, anticoagulation alone. And then from uh, low-risk PE, you know, the second and third groups are uh, um, uh, submassive um, and then uh, massive PE patients. And, um, you know, submassive patients are roughly about 20% of patients um, with PE. Uh, mass being uh, uh, far less, cl- closer to 5% or so. And so that's where the role for, you know, IR and surgery um, kind of uh, enters. With respect to submassive PE, um, that's probably where um, we may, you know, in the future be f- further dividing those patients and um, uh, stratifying them as well. But Submassive PE would be um, PE with uh, uh, signs of uh, hemodynamic uh, strain on the heart, specifically right ventricular strain um, or dilatation. Uh, and then massive PE is where there's signs of strain on the heart, but also associated hypotension. And um, these, you know, when we talk about the, you know, going from low risk to, to massive PE, you know, this is just a, a continuum um, uh, in the pathophysiology of the disease. Uh, when we talk about uh, treatments, when we talk about medical treatments, we're, we're specifically talking about uh, anticoagulation, um, and, and we're you know specifically like heparin or um, low molecular weight heparin uh, agents, and that's for for low risk PE. And then th- those patients are transitioned over to oral uh, anticoagulants um, over time. When we talk about IR treatments, uh, specifically talking about catheter based treatments, um, where we can place uh, infusion catheters into directly into the thrombus. Um, and what these infusion catheters do, they're like kind of like soaker hoses or they're just very uh, thin, small catheters with multiple side holes in them. And we can drip athletic agents um, like TPA um, and the clot um, slowly over time to kind of help dissolve it. And um, the reason we drip slowly over time is because we want to minimize the risk uh, of um, hemorrhage, um, specifically intracranial hemorrhage. That's kind of the pharmaceutical way that IR approaches um, uh, DVT and um, PE. With respect to kind of mechanical things, 
Um, we reserve kind of mechanical treatments mostly for um, massive PE when patients are showing, you know, really signs of hemodynamic instability, hypotension, or pressors. When we start using things like a pigtail, like a pigtail catheter to kind of uh, go in and macerate or, or break up clot, um, or we can go in and put uh, devices that actually vacuum or, or suck out the clot. Um, we have specific um, uh, devices on the market uh, that do do that, or we can do things as simple as put sheets um, into the into the um, arteries and actually just you know manually uh, aspirate the clot as well. So. Um, there's a wide range of things. Um, also, when we kind of get into the massive PE um, uh, category, we're also talking about using, um, potentially using um, uh, systemic TPA. And so that would uh, also fall under kind of a medical treatment. Got it. Thank you. Um, so diving back into something you mentioned earlier, um, along the spectrum of submassive to massive PE, you mentioned uh, right ventricular uh, issues. And I remember hearing you guys, uh, and it might have been you actually, that uh, mentioned something called the right ventricular spiral of death. And uh, there's a great image on Google for our listeners. And uh, it's, it really uh, explains it well. And um, if you could kind of go into what the RV spiral of death, quote unquote, is and um, how maybe we can uh, do uh, a good job at identifying it at different stages in the process. For sure. Yeah, that seemed to be a popular uh, uh, image or JPEG because I noticed it was showed up at every other talk as well. So I was happy that uh, everyone else kind of recognized that. <laughs> um, but basically, you know, when we talk about uh, PE and what we're really trying to prevent is uh, um, the strain on the heart that that uh, large central PE, um, you know, so like a saddle embolus in the main pulmonary artery or, or lobar PE. What that does is, um, uh, it is, like I mentioned, it causes strain in the heart. And, and so the spiral of death, um, that image that we just were talking about that you could probably Google, um, really just shows um, the stepwise progression of what, what happens to the heart um, in the setting of, of large PE. And so the first thing that happens is, you know, it's just like simple plumbing is that, uh, you know, uh, pressure in the pulmonary artery increases due to the obstructing embolus. Uh, the right ventricle gets dilated because it's now, you know, having to uh, um, a higher pressure. And so when that happens, um, that's the first step. That's when we, that's, a, once we see that, we're now talking about submassive PE. We've now crossed over from low risk to submassive PE. And so the way we can detect ventricular dilatation is, is fairly simple as two different ways. Um, but more, more commonly than not, um, uh, these patients are going to get the, uh, diagnosed with PE with the with the CT scan. So, and in in in, in general, the right ventricle is never larger than the left ventricle um, uh, in a in a healthy patient because of the low low pressure state in uh, our uh, system. And so, um, if you see if you see the right ventricle is bigger than the left ventricle, meaning that the right ventricular ratio to the left is greater than uh, 0.9 or one. Um, then you're, then this patient is, uh, uh, is essentially diagnosed as uh, uh, submassive PE. And so the other way to, to, to detect that would be to get an echocardiogram or, or an echo uh, if you're unsure. But um, so that's the first step in the spiral. And then as the spiral continues, as you go down and around it, uh, all, the, all the things that happen are, are a consequence of the right ventricular dilatation and the, and the right heart having to pump um, harder um, uh, 
due to that clot. And so what happens is eventually the, um, you're causing right ventricular ischemia, um, and that's going to start manifesting um, with uh, biochemical markers, um, such as, um, you know, a troponin leak or a BNP increase, again, uh, due to the uh, increased stress on that side of the heart. And eventually, as the, as the heart starts failing, and again, uh, real quick, just to go back to the biochemical markers, we've kind of identified a, a, a potential second group of patients called high-risk submassive PE patients. And that's, uh, the, that's kind of a subgroup of submassive patients where they're, they're really showing signs of potential they're a little bit, they've progressed a little bit more than just submassive patients. We think the new current thinking is that these patients are, 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 are more likely to progress to massive PE or potentially be um, uh, at higher risk for, for that progression. And so when that happens, um, the next, really the next imminent step for those patients is to go into to heart failure, um, meaning the right increases the, and then that affects the amount of blood that comes to the left side of the heart. Um, and so once that happens, once the preload on the left side decreases, then the patient's going to have uh, hypotension. And now, um, uh, uh, by definition, they've reached uh, massive PE. And so at this point, um, you know, unfortunately, death is, uh, uh, mortality is very high, uh, approximately 50%, even with treatment. And so uh, patients can, uh, you know, very, once they've reached this point, they've kind of rapidly progressed to cardiogenic shock. And so... Um, Again, really the things to monitor is, are, um, uh, as a clinician is to look at the imaging, um, look at the biochemical markers, but then also clinically how, how patients are doing with respect to vitals um, and their respiratory status as well. Sorry for the long-winded answer there. <laughs> no, that's perfect. So it sounds like for a lot of these patients who have um, high risks of massive and massive PEs, we really need to do our best to give them optimal treatment since they're in a very dangerous situation. So, uh, Dr. Med, would you be able to take us through um, what a procedure in the interventional radiology suite would be like for, for uh, PE treatment, um, kind of from access until uh, the patient leaves? Yeah, definitely. So, um, that's actually a very great question because um, uh, when we talk about patients with submassive PE, um, you know, they're relatively stable patients, meaning they don't have um, hypotension, um, you know, hemodynamically, they're doing okay, although their heart is under strain. So we try to do those procedures with almost no anesthesia, meaning um, with just local anesthetic only, because we sedate those patients in any way that uh, potentially reduces their respiratory drive and can actually progress them to massive PE. And so, like I said, we do it with just local anesthesia. And some people prefer to go from the jugular vein and some people prefer to go through the common femoral vein. I would say in our practice, uh, it's uh, mostly femoral, um, uh, uh, but other practices do primarily internal jugular. And so um, what we do is we'll, uh, we'll get access uh, into the vein and uh, again, typically we do two separate accesses. So one access for, you know, for if the clot is bilateral, we'll get two accesses. Uh, if the clot is just unilateral, you only need one. Um, uh, alternatively, you could just place one big sheet and then put two catheters through that as well. Um, so the options, uh, you know, are all there. But uh, once we get access um, uh, into the vein, um, you know, fluoroscopically, we'll uh, advance a wire and a catheter. Um, uh, into the uh, into the right uh, ventricle, and then um, uh, we'll uh, take uh, pressure measurements uh, or hemodynamic pressure measurements from the right ventricle, uh, as well as a pulmonary artery. 
um, to get a baseline pressure measurement. And then um, uh, similarly, we'll advance a wire through the thrombus. Um, typically, since it's acute uh, clot, a, a wire passes very simply uh, or very easily through that clot. Uh, and then over the wire, we're able to place the infusion catheters. Again, when we're talking about submassive PE, um, these are the patients that we talked about that have um, just right heart strain without any hemodynamic compromise. So um, these are patients we could potentially make worse. These are patients we could potentially push into massive PE. So we try to act quick and we try not to disturb the clot too much. I mean, we just try to place some fusion catheters in there as fast as possible and, and, and kind of uh, get the patient off your table because we don't want them to get sicker um, on our table. Alternatively, when we have a patient with massive PE, somebody who's in, in extremis or, or hypotensive, those are patients that have a very, very high risk of mortality. These are patients that um, can die on your procedure table. And so oh, we do everything, you know, the, the, the adage of, you know, we throw the kitchen sink at them, meaning they're probably going to, they're most likely going to die if you don't do anything. So everything is on the table. So those are the patients where we'll take pigtail catheters and try to map, uh, try to break up the clot, or we'll put in a sheath and try to suck the clot, um, or we'll do anything we can to kind of reperfuse or recreate a channel through the pulmonary artery to kind of reduce that strain on the heart. And so, um, so those those procedures will be very different. Those procedures are uh, almost always done with with anesthesia as well, where they kind of help monitor the patient or, or revive them if if something happens. Wow. I can, I can just see it before my eyes, the way you're describing it. Um, and just to follow up on that, somebody with a low-risk uh, pulmonary embolism, would you do any sort of procedure at that time? Um, no. So those are the patients that um, will, because their rate of mortality, you know, with low-risk PE, meaning there's no signs of heart strain or, or um, hypotension, those patients have a very, very low risk of mortality, less than 1%. And so um, those are the patients, uh, fortunately, which are the majority of patients who come to the hospital with PE. Those are the patients that are managed with just anticoagulation alone. Great. Thank you. I was wondering if you could go over with us some of the landmark studies discussing um, catheter-directed thrombolysis or uh, clot removal. If there were any particular ones that you thought our listeners should um, take a look at for either low-risk, submassive, or massive PEs. Definitely. I mean, this is a, a this is a great question, Sana, and I think that um, anyone that is interested in PE or wants to treat PE or you know plans to become an IR uh, should be familiar with um, really three big studies currently um, uh, about PE, and those are the Ultima and Seattle two trials and the Perfect Registry. Three really kind of um, very important papers that that were uh, that were published in you know in the last three years. So um, the first one would be the Ultima trial that came out in um, 2013, and then the Seattle Two Imperfect came out in 2015. And so, um, uh, so where we're at right now is that um, uh, you know just based off those years, it tells you how early we are in this in in, in terms of uh, the of of you know just studying the disease of PE from a from an IR approach. You know what these studies show is, uh, especially uh, the specifically the Ultima and the Seattle Two trial um, uh, studies showed uh, were that these were prospective randomized controlled trials um, that showed that catheter-directed thrombolysis, and specifically in this in these studies, these were uh, used in the ECOS catheter, um, showed that approximately 30% reduction in um, right ventricular strain and and um, pulmonary artery uh, pressures 
um, uh, reduction with with infusion of um, uh, TPA. And in the Altimo trial, they compared that to patients who um, were treated with just anticoagulation alone. And um, uh, in, in that uh, anticoagulation group, uh, uh, there was really no reduction in right ventricular strain or our um, pulmonary pressures at, at 48 hours. And so um, what they showed was that um, uh, it, at 48 hours, thrombolysis um, causes earlier reduction in, 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 the, in these kind of uh, markers of, of submassive PE that we just talked about with respect to the, to the um, uh, pathophysiology. So the Ultima and Seattle 2 trials, you know, were um, randomized controlled trials really low number of patients overall, um, but they were very uh, important in that they were kind of prospective randomized control trials done on um, cathodirected um, therapies for PE. Um, next came the PERFECT registry, which was a um, prospective registry done at Stanford by um, Dr. Ko um, that I mentioned before. And what he did was, um, you know, uh, started this multi-institutional registry where they collected real-world data People forming um, cathodirected thrombolysis um, for both submassive and massive PE, um, and they uh, were essentially able to reproduce similar results of these um, other two trials. Um, but uh, in their registry, they didn't—they um, uh, didn't uh, require the use of the ECOS catheter. They showed similar results in infusion catheters as well. And so. All three of these trials are really important in kind of really starting the, the discussion of choosing um, catheter-based treatments to treat, you know, primarily submassive PE, but also um, for their role with massive PE uh, uh, as well. Even to this day, um, uh, the guidelines at present, um, uh, when I talk about guidelines, I'm talking about like um, American College of Chest Physicians or the ACCP guidelines still don't have our treatments, um, our endovascular treatments as a preferred um, uh, treatment. So these studies have really got the ball rolling in terms of identifying the benefits of what we can offer patients, but um, they're just a kind of a starting point. They really were meant to kind of help um, uh, encourage others to continue to do similar trials and, and, and reproduce the results on a larger scale. That's great. So um, I guess the, these trials have really started um, off the field, um, and it's kind of a, a new frontier, uh, for, at least as far as research goes. Um, so what kind of questions still need to be answered um, from these studies? Um, any, you know, long-term results um, and development of sequelae such as uh, pulmonary arterial hypertension and uh, other comorbidities in these patients? Yeah, that, that's a great question, Adam. Um, I think there's, uh, you know, to try to keep it focused and brief, I think there's a lot of questions that do need to still be answered. Um, primary things that um, you know we're starting to look at now are long-term outcomes with respect to mortality and and quality of life. And so, um, when we talk about mortality um, and when we're talking about um, submassive PE, you know, short uh, mortality um, is fairly low uh, with just anticoagulation alone. So it's about five percent. And so, showing a mortality benefit with catheter-based treatments. Um, may or may not be hard, um, or sorry, may be hard, but um, it can definitely be done, but will just probably require lots and lots of patients to be studied. 
Um, you know, similar to DVT um, with the attract trial um, is is looking at quality of life. And so, if something happened with um, with submassive with large with with large clots in in the pulmonary system is something called post PE syndrome. So, just like the post thrombotic syndrome, you can get that um, in the lungs, and that manifests with you know, exercise intolerance and difficulty breathing and in chronic pulmonary hypertension. Um, that's uh, another primary area of focus is to see if these catheter-based treatments can help prevent those. It, going back to what these initial studies were looking at, we're, we're, we're looking at reversing right heart strain at an early at an early time period, you know, within 48 hours. So we, we know that that works, but we want to know, we, what we're trying to figure out now is um, what is the benefit of doing that on a long-term basis? Um, will that reduce mortality um, when mortality already is very low? Um, again, that remains to be seen, but more likely than not, um, we'll hopefully see that this at least reduces uh, or improves quality of life with, with um, a reduction in the rate of chronic pulmonary hypertension and things like that. Dr. Ahmed, are there any uh, current or future trials in the works? Um, I know I've heard about the Optolyse trial, for example. Yep. Um, yeah, there's definitely, um, I think a lot of, as we kind of mentioned, a lot of interest that's been sparked in uh, PE in the last couple of years, you know, related to some of these, you know, kind of early pioneering studies. And so uh, there are uh, the Optolyse treatment that you mentioned um, uh, is, a, is one where the abstract results were just released um, recently, at least the one-year follow-up data was. And, you know, a lot of the interest now is trying to figure out um, if we can get similar results with you know, different regimens of TPA dosages, um, or if we can even eliminate TPA completely. And so Optolyse is looking at using, um, you know, the ECOS infusion catheter and trying to see if, if we can get similar results, um, but, not, but not dripping TPA over 24 hours, if we can maybe potentially reduce the overall dose by giving a little bit higher dosage dosages in, um, uh, you know, two, four or six hour regimens. And so, um, uh, you know, that, that data has been released uh, in terms of the abstract. The study, uh, um, the actual study is, from my understanding, it still hasn't been published, but I'll be interested to see kind of the full manuscript um, when it comes out. Um, but the abstract results do look promising with respect to the um, ability to reduce pulmonary um, pressures. Um, uh, I am a part of a study called the Extract PE trial where we're uh, investigating using just aspiration catheters for submassive PE and then potentially eliminating the need for uh, TPA completely. Um, and then probably the most uh, important study that hopefully will um, be launched uh, soon is the one that Dr. Sista, who's really kind of um, taken a, a, a big role in um, the field of PE and is a really, aside from being a great guy, is a very smart uh, person who's uh, really spearheaded the future of, of PE research um, and he's working on something called the PE track trial, where um, uh, hopefully it'll be an NIH-sponsored trial looking at the benefit of, of CDT or catheter-directed therapy for um, PE with respect to those long-term outcomes we were talking about before. And so um, that um, is the trial that I think is everybody's really is looking forward to um, getting it uh, going and, and, and seeing what the results of that will be. It's very exciting stuff. Um, so, you know, I started getting interested in this topic because I was fortunate enough to attend ICIT in Fort Lauderdale, and I heard Dr. Rosenfield um, talk about uh, the Pulmonary Embolus Response Team Consortium and uh, how a pulmonary embolism uh, response team 
uh, in each hospital can really work on a multi multidisciplinary uh, team to uh, provide the best outcomes for patients. So can you talk a little bit about uh, what PERT is doing, the PERT consortium is doing, and how it's changing uh, the management of PE around the world? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I said definitely great me meeting. And, um, you know, again, uh, with respect to PERT consortium, it's, it's a really great um, kind of concept and um, organization. What they're essentially doing is um, it was started by physicians at MassGen is, um, you know, recognizing that, you know, PE, you know, being the third um, largest kill, uh, uh, cause of mortality in cardiovascular disease after uh, MI and um, stroke is kind of approached PE similarly in the sense that, you know, um, you know, when patients have a stroke or an MI, it activates a, a, a team of physicians because um, to treat these diseases um, that are, have a high uh, rate of mortality requires the coordination of a lot of different physicians. The consortium is, uh, has uh, started the PE response team or, or institution that concept uh, and helps other you know, institutions get off the ground in terms of starting, uh, starting one as well. Um, and um, I think it's a, um, it's a really important thing that um, any institution that wants to um, treat PE um, uh, aggressively um, uh, should, uh, should institute. And so um, in the process, they've kind of gathered um, uh, the world's or uh, um, the world's experts on, uh, um, on PE and, and also kind of help uh, direct future research and guidance and, and, and things like that. And so um, they will, um, have really kind of, um, uh, again, uh, along with some of the, you know, trials we've mentioned have helped kind of spearhead uh, the future management and treatment of PE. And it sounds like a lot of these goals of the PERT consortium to, <clears throat> to interact with uh, different disciplines uh, when trying to treat a uh, single problem and really being focused on uh, holistic patient care it sounds like this uh, it sounds like this dovetails very nicely with uh, the goals of the new IRDR residency program yeah you're yeah I think you're absolutely correct um, in terms of like um, you know when we look at uh, diseases like PE um, and when we're talking about some of the treatments like submassive PE you know those aren't uh, aren't terribly I would say aren't they're not terribly challenging um, technical procedures to do um, a lot of the um, the challenges in treating them um, come through the clinical management, the multidisciplinary interaction and things like that. And so um, I think it's the same concept with IRDR residency uh, uh, in terms of the issues they're trying to address um, uh, with the you know, previous problems with, with IR you know, training, um, which is um, you know, being a little bit too isolated from the clinical aspect of medicine. And, and so, um, like you said, I think, uh, um, the, the new training pathway uh, will emphasize um, learning about uh, or, or will place a greater emphasis on learning the clinical um, aspects of care, um, uh, not just PE, but uh, obviously anything else that we manage so that we, um, you know, evolve from being uh, technicians and, and, and um, physicians who, you know, uh, treat disease, but, all, but more, more than that, manage disease and, 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 and take kind of full control of our patients. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, so if, if you want to look up more information about uh, the PERT Consortium, you can go on their website at pertconsortium.org. Um, so as we wrap up uh, this great interview, 
Um, I have one final question before I think Santa has another one as well. Um, what do you envision as far as the role of interventional radiology uh, in the future of pulmonary embolism diagnosis and treatment? And I know we've discussed this through the trials and such, but if maybe you can give us a picture of, of the next 10 years uh, for our future trainees. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I think I would, I would even uh, go a step above just PE diagnosis and treatment and, and, and um, uh, lump it into VTE diagnosis and treatment. And my, my, I don't know if I necessarily envision it, but my hope or, or like dream would be that um, we become the experts um, in VTE you know, or PE treatment, meaning that um, any patient that comes to the ER, comes to the hospital with a diagnosis, um, you know, gets gets automatically consulted to us. Or, or we are the specialty that comes to mind of, in terms of how should we manage this patient? Does this pan, does it, should this just be medical? Should this be um, uh, treated more invasively? As opposed to us being consulted only um, when people think that um, there may be a role for IR uh, to, to be involved. And I think as we kind of talked about with IRDR, um, you know, that clinical pathway, and we be, us becoming more uh, involved in clinical medicine, I think that is a possibility, um, especially with kind of um, bright students such as you, you guys um, kind of entering the field and hopefully will kind of um, continue to take us to that. Um, but um, I think you know, more specific to your question about the future of PE diagnosis and treatment, um, I think with these with these studies coming out, um, uh, it will firmly cement IR as it's kind of one of the primary specialties that manages this disease with respect to the PE trial and other kind of um, important trials that are being done. Um, and will, you know, kind of, again, cement us as the um, uh, physicians who uh, will take a large part in the treatment of these diseases. Yeah. Um, uh, Dr. Ahmed, before we uh, wrap up, my last question for you is, if you were on an elevator with a medical student or a trainee who was on his or her way to see his or her first treatment of a pulmonary embolism in the IR suite, uh, what advice would you give him or her before one of you had to step off of the elevator? <laughs> um, well, I will say this is probably my favorite question because... <laughs> Um, I would say buckle up, um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> because I think, you know, honestly, um, you know, for good or bad, PE is one of the most exciting um, diseases we treat. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the things we do in, in IR, um, you know, uh, again, better or worse, uh, they're fairly, um, uh, I wouldn't say mundane, but they're, you know, they're fairly safe procedures, meaning um, you know, you do the procedure, pay, you know, you expect the patient to do completely fine. And, 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 and when you're treating PE, um, things can go really bad, really fast, um, you know, again, unfortunately. But um, the flip side to that is um, we're, we're treating with, with PE, we're treating uh, life-threatening diseases. Um, and we've had patients, for example, um, with massive PE where we've coded them on the table and brought them back after, you know, um, uh, clearing their their clot in their in their pulmonary artery, and then they came back three months later as outpatients to remove their filters. So um, I would tell that student, um, you know, this is going to be a really, uh, really, really, you know, interesting, exciting procedure, and you're going to see immediate uh, feedback with respect to, um, 
you know, uh, saving, potentially saving a, a person's life here. And so um, more than most of our other procedures, I think you see that uh, clearly when you treat the that's great. And um, with that, I think we're going to wrap up uh, today's interview. Um, if you'd like to follow Dr. Ahmed on Twitter, um, he's at the real Dr. Oz. And uh, you can follow him as well. Uh, he is the he does the, the Twitter account for JVIR Media. Um, so thank you, Dr. Ahmed, for coming on to the Sound of IR podcast. Um, it was a really great interview, and I think everybody's going to love it. Awesome. Awesome. Guys, I thank you more uh, than you could thank me. It's been, a, like I said, it's been a privilege. Um, and it's been really uh, exciting talking about this. And um, again, it's really awesome to see uh, just the enthusiasm and kind of love for IR that I see on Twitter. And so I'm glad I'm, I get to be a part of it. Thank you. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. That's it for this episode. If you would like to be part of a podcast episode, we'd love to hear from you. If you're interested in interviewing a practicing IR physician, being interviewed by a member of our team, or contributing in any other way, please let us know. Our email address is thesoundofir at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. We are at the underscore sound underscore of underscore IR. Please keep an eye out for our upcoming episodes this season where we'll be discussing interventional oncology, venous disease, tips, and private practice in IR. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave us a rating and review on the podcast app of your choice. See you next time.